Well, good morning. Glad you guys are joining us. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my name's Sean. I am one of the pastors here, and uh, glad you guys are joining us online this morning. Uh, we are starting a new series called This Is We, which, as has been pointed out to me by everybody who has any sort of second grade education, that that is not English for whatever it is but it fits for the sermon series. So, this is we. There's a, there's a movie that came out a couple years ago. How, did you see this? Um, Hacksaw Ridge um, is the name of the movie. Uh, do you remember seeing this? It's, it's a movie about a guy named Desmond Doss, and um, he, it's an incredible story. Uh, his accounting is that he saved about 50 men. The men he worked with said that he saved about 100 men, but he's an excessively humble person. And in World War II in the Pacific Theater, he was a pacifist who was a soldier, refused to carry a gun. And it's this amazing story of in a single night, without ever picking up a gun under enemy fire, that he would find injured soldiers and he drag them to the edge of a 400 foot cliff and he would let them down with the rope down to medics below and when the when the movie premiered some years ago um it premiered in italy i don't know particularly why but it premiered in italy and when it ended uh there was a 10 minute standing ovation for this desmond doss it, it's an incredible story and it's such an incredible story that sometimes it's hard to believe in fact, after the movie came out, there's a lot of criticism that he received, that things were exaggerated, that it was overplayed, that things were built up, that it wasn't what it really was, and it wasn't as true as it had been represented in the story or in his um, biography that was written about him, because there's something unbelievable about the story, right? There's something so crazily unbelievable, and it's not, it's not the physical feat that's unbelievable. I mean, that is, that is amazing, right? In one night, to lower, and at least if the, if the real guy looked anything like the guy who played the actor, he's a scrawny dude, right? And, and for a hundred guys, 400 feet of rope, in the movie they show at the end his hands are just, just mangled from, from releasing this rope down the 400 foot cliff. It's not that. It's, it's, not even, it's not even his willingness to stick to his convictions, Right? As a pacifist, because of his, his, his belief, um, his, his Christian belief that he was a pacifist, refused to carry a gun, even as he was being shot at, never picked up a gun. Right? That's amazing. But what's really unbelievable and what's really hard for us to believe about the story is to see someone that is completely and utterly selfless. When we see demonstrations of such selflessness as this, as a guy being willing to take fires so he can let down injured and dying men down to medics, all the while refusing to retaliate, even in the, in the midst of war, it seems so unbelievable because whether we recognize it consciously or unconsciously, we all see in ourselves a me-focused world. Anytime someone tries to demonstrate a fullness of selflessness, we always, in the back of our mind, we have this like little hiccup. Okay, what's the catch? Like, what, what, what are they going to get out of this? What's the, what's, the, what's the pitch that they have for us? Because we see in ourselves, in the world we live in, such a me-focused world. I, I really think that in a lot of things, that the... the, the the epitome of what is broken in us and in this world is all of us seeing this world through a me-centered lens. I mean, marriage is a great example, right? When you get married and um, the, the um, let's say the luster of the newness of the marriage begins to fade, 
and we all start to get older, right? Are you with me here? And we all start to get older, which is a very self-me fulfilling, like, oh, it, I like what I'm looking at kind of thing. As that begins to fade, if the marriage does not mature, first to a we perspective, I saw a study one time that says that it takes the average married person two years before they refer to their spouse and them and actions as we, when they make the shift like in their vocabulary from, for example, for me, my wife Dawn, instead of saying Dawn and I, instead of saying, starting to say we, if a marriage does make a shift to we, but it has to even go further than that, for a marriage to survive, it has to go shifting from me to we to you. And that really to have a God-honoring, life-giving marriage, it has to be a constant pursuit of pursuing your good, right? But so many marriages fall apart because it just becomes a battle of who's going to give up the least in a battle of me. It's why I think um, being part of a church or in a church community can be so difficult too. Because we approach church with a me-centered lens, and what can I get out of it, and what can I receive, and how are they going to take care of me, 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 and we always end up disappointed and disconnected. Me. God is inviting us to see the world differently. What if, what if that thing that is broken in us is simply the posture of our heart and our mind? What if it isn't just out there, but what if it's in here? What if it's in here? We're going to spend the next four weeks inviting you to a different way of interacting with God and his call on you. We're going to ask a bunch of yous that could be tempted and and led to see the world in a me-centered way. To say, what would it look like if we saw the world as we, or maybe even better, as yous? And how can I serve and love you? What does it mean to be we? What does it mean to be a part of this we that we call Monmouth Christian Church? I'm going to be straight with you. Just like a good coach, it's going to be an uncomfortable four weeks. Because you see, uh, sometimes, if you're, if you're a baseball fan, right? Sometimes when you're playing baseball, um, you're up to bat, and there's someone on second base, and the game is on the line, and the coach calls in a play. He makes signals to you, or, you know, beats on a trash can, if you're a Houston Astros fan, right? Beats on a trash can, and he makes signals to you, and your job is to offer a pop-up fly. Your job is to diminish your batting average for the betterment of the team, If you play football and you have a good defensive coach, right, the defensive coordinator may ask you if you're a lineman to tie up a double team, and there'll be no highlight about you, but to tie up a double team so the linebacker can have a clean line to a gap so that he can pad his stats with another tackle, all for the betterment of the team. If you play basketball, your coach may ask you at some time to, um, you know, take an on-ball screen at the top of the key and to get run over by this guy who's 50 pounds heavier than you so that the guy with the ball can make it around the corner and end up with a game-winning shot, all at your cost for the betterment of the team. It's what it means to be part of we. There will be times that if you dedicate yourself to being a part of the family of God, to being part of this church, that people, that your in-laws are going to question why. When maybe parents or children or coworkers or neighbors are going to look at the way you choose to live your life that doesn't make sense in a me-centered world, 
in a world that's willing to, in, in a church that's willing to sacrifice for one another, and you're going to get, you know, Facebook comments, and you're going to get blasted on things, and you're going to get passive comments and eye rolls, because it's so unbelievable in a world so focused on me that there could be people who would be willing to sacrifice themselves for the we, but that's what it means to be the church. So I want to introduce you, I want to introduce you to uh, the first of the four we statements that we're going to look at this week, so uh, over the next month. So it says this, this is the first one, let's toss it up here. We are, oh, there we go, we are faith-filled, big-thinking, bet-the-farm risk-takers. We will never insult God with small thinking and safe living. And if something like that doesn't get you excited. We are faith-filled, big-thinking, bet-the-farm risk-takers. This is what it means to be a part of this church, that we will never insult God with small thinking and safe living. There's a problem with written text. You know, so we can just leave that up there for a while. I'll, I'll be referencing a lot. There's a problem with written text. If you text with people, um, you know that if they don't properly use emojis or GIFs or GIFs, whatever we've decided in 2020, what we're going to call those things, that if you don't use proper emojis or GIFs or GIFs, that um, if sometimes a response, it's hard to read. I know it's why I don't like having discussions on text message or email because it's hard to read what the person's trying to say. So he here's an example, right? If someone says, if someone writes the words, no way, it can come across as two things, right? If you tell someone um, about something that happened in your life and they write, no way, no punctuation, no gifs, no emojis, nothing, it can mean two things, right? It can mean this, <laughs> no way, <laughs> no, no way, no way on earth would I ever root for the beavers, okay? No way. The depravity in me is not that deep, or the goodness of me to be willing to sacrifice. Anyways, whatever it is, right? Or you can say no way this way, right? They could send you something about something that's going on, and you go, no way! That's amazing! Right? Right? So sometimes when we're reading the Bible, we miss the emotion and the shock, because words can just come flat. As you read through the Gospels, there's two times that stand out to me that Jesus, Jesus, the creator, the one who scripture says, in him and through him and for things, all things were created, right? God himself, God incarnate. There are two times where it says that Jesus was shocked or amazed. The first one is this. If you have a Bible and you want to turn to me, it's in Mark, turn with me, it's in Mark 6. Jesus is returning to his hometown. Um, he, he's been out teaching and all this kind of stuff, and, and it's on the weekend. And so what does Jesus do, right? He's, he's a good Messiah, so he, he goes to church, right? And uh, since it is God incarnate, he turns out to kind of be the guest preacher. And um, it says that the people were astounded. And, and they say this say, statement that you, you may not be able to quite read all the emotion in it, but they say these things that come out like this. Come on. There's no way this is the carpenter's son, right? And what they're saying is there's no way. This is just the carpenter's son. It's, it's summed up in Mark 6, 3. If you have your Bibles, you can look at it. It says this. Um, they took offense at him. No way. 
right? But Jesus responds, and Mark sums up this comment, Mark 6, verse 6, it says this. It says this. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Mark 6, 6. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Can we all, can we just for a moment, can we all just agree, like, this is not the kind of amazing you want to do for Jesus. Right? If Jesus was to walk in here, like, this is not the way you'd want Jesus to be amazed by your life. But there was another time Jesus was amazed. Uh, we looked at the story a couple months ago in the book of Matthew, but today I want to look at it in Luke 7. So if you have a Bible and you want to stay there, you can turn to Luke 7, which is a little bit to your right. Luke 7, it tells a story about this high-ranking Roman official, Roman soldier. Now, to understand all that's going on, you have to understand that the hope for the Jews in Jesus' day for 100 years before, and well, a couple hundred years before, and 100 or two years, 100 years, well, about 100 years afterwards, what the hope of the Jewish people when it came to the Messiah was that the Messiah would show up, you see this in Peter, right? That the Messiah would show up, that he'd show up as a great and mighty warrior, and by violence, he would vanquish the Roman army that was oppressing them, right? This was their hope and anticipation, that this is what the Messiah would do. He would come, and he would destroy the Roman Empire and the Roman soldiers. Every Roman official, every Roman soldier knew this. This is why there was so much tension between the Jews and the Romans, right? Is their hope was that someone would come and kill all of them. And that didn't make really, that's not like in the book, how to win friends and influence people, right? That's not there. And, and so the, you have to see how astonishing this is. Jesus is there and a Roman soldier comes to Jesus because his servant's sick. A Roman soldier who people are beginning to say of Jesus, this is the Messiah who's going to kill all the Roman soldiers and vanquish them from this land. He comes in such desperation because his servant is sick. And he comes weaving through all these Jews that their hope and their dream and their passion is that one day God will come and kill all these guys. He comes weaving up to Jesus and he asked Jesus to heal his servant. And Jesus says, okay, I'll, I'll come with you. And he says, no, 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 no. All you have to do is say, a word, and he'll be healed. All you have to do is say a word, and he'll be healed. And it says this in Luke 7, verse 9. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. He was shocked. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. If you write in your Bible, you should underline this word right there, amazed. I mean, think of the faith of this Roman soldier that the God of the universe was shocked, was amazed. Turning the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Every day of your life and the culmination, the fullness of your life, you have an opportunity to amaze Jesus in two ways. You can either amaze Jesus as his childhood neighbors or as the Roman soldier. Every day of your life, you have the choice whether you will walk in the same kind of faith that the Roman soldier demonstrated that shocks Jesus, amazes him, that he stands in awe, or as his childhood friends, isn't this just the carpet? Isn't this just a good guy? Isn't he just a nice teacher? Isn't he just kind? Doesn't he just have some nice things to say? You have the opportunity 
to amaze Jesus. So let me, let me ask you this question for a little clarity, a little application. Um, if we were to look at your prayer life, right, how much you pray and what you pray about, would it amaze Jesus? That, that may be too big a question because like a lot of you have been following Jesus for a long time. Maybe you haven't been following Jesus for a long time, but even let's just, that's a lot to process through. Let's think about this last week. Let me ask you this question. In this last week, in the last seven days, if God answered every single one of your prayers, would anything meaningful be different in the world? If every single thing, if you knew for seven days, the last seven days, that every single word you prayed, God would do exactly as you would do. First of all, we should all be really nervous um, that God would trust you that much. But if he did, I mean, the, the honest truth is that for a lot of us, there'd be nothing different in the world. For a lot of us, we just like, maybe our food would be a little bit more blessed than it was the week before. For some of us, for some of us, our community and our world and our nation would be so drastically different. We are faith-filled, big-thinking, bet-the-farm risk-takers. We will never insult God with small thinking or safe living. Hebrews eleven six holds this little verse that's tucked in the middle of what we call the Hall of Faith. Uh, and the Hall of Faith, it's kind of like a pun off the Hall of Fame, if you've never read through Hebrews 11. And it has all these great stories of great men and women of faith. And it says this, tucked in the middle of Hebrews 11, it says, and without faith, oh, go back to verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Now just take a deep breath and look at this and read this again right here, okay? You can ignore the rest. That's, I mean, it's good. You can read, read the Bible. That's good. Anytime you want to read the Bible. But here, for today's purpose, just look at these first words. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. I, uh, I was curious, so I have this program called Logos, and it does a bunch of stuff, and it has all kinds of concordances and dictionaries and Greek and Aramaic and how the Aramaic transitioned from the Hebrew and into the Greek and then back into Aramaic, all this kind of like crazy weird stuff. And so I looked up and I thought, I, I wonder what this word here in Greek means and all of its layers and complexity. And, and, and you know what it means? Impossible right there. You know what that means in Greek? It means um, to not be possible. And without faith, it is impossible. Impossible. Like there's not even an option. It's not like, oh, without faith, it's kind of hard. Without faith, you might struggle. Without faith, it is impossible. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. We are faith-filled, big thinking, bet the farm, risk takers, for without faith, it is impossible to please God. There's another verse in Hebrews 11.1. 1, it says this. You've probably heard it before. Hebrews 11.1, 1, the beginning of the chapter, it says this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You see, uh, essential nature of being obedient to God is that we don't always have all the answers. 
We as a church don't always have all the answers. We as followers of Jesus don't always know what's going to happen. In fact, if we did always know what was going to happen, it wouldn't be faith. And if it wasn't faith, we couldn't please God. There are times in our life when Jesus calls us to take a step forward and we can't see what's in front of us. There are times as a church where God calls us to take a step out with the conviction of things not seen. That there's nothing there but God says to follow me, to come, to take a step. There's a story, you know the story. Disciples out in a boat and there's a storm going on and, and uh, uh, Jesus comes to him on the water. He comes walking on the water and the disciples freak out and they think that he's a ghost, which to be fair is a much more reasonable explanation of what's going on that Jesus is walking on the water. Is it not? Right? You see something on the, uh, out on the water. If you're out fishing at night and there's a big storm, you see something on the water, your first impression is, oh yeah, that's my fishing buddy Jimmy, just walking on the water tonight, right? And so they panic and they freak, they see this ghost. And Peter, Peter says to Jesus, he says, well, if it's you, then tell me to come out. And Jesus does, and, and he steps out onto the water. And we easily, we like to critique Peter. It's easy to throw Peter under the bus because Peter steps out and it says he walks on the water, right? Did you get that? You didn't miss that. He didn't just, just there, there's nothing there, right? Just step. And he steps on the water. And I've always wondered, could you, wouldn't it be amazing if we had video of it? Because it's a stormy sea. So did like when he had to walk, was, was it easy to balance on the water? Like did he, did he as the waves came, did he kind of lose his balance or did he like have to climb up the waves to like step over and was it like slick like ice? Whatever it was, he steps out of this boat onto the water and he walks on water. And then his eyes go off Jesus and he sinks into the waves and he panics. And we easily, we can so easily critique Peter, but I ask you this question, who lived by faith, Peter who sank amongst the waves or the disciples who sat in the safety of the boat? You see, following Jesus, faith can be messy, and sometimes you don't know what it looks like in front, but here, uh, if you're a note taker, write this down. You can either have faith or you can have control, but you can't have both. You can have faith or you can have control, but you can't have both. Peter chose to let go of the control and the safety of the boat to step out on the water that nothing in his mind told him he could do. Nothing in a rational world told him it was a safe and acceptable and okay thing for him to step on the water. But he had a conviction of things not seen. And we cannot, it is impossible to please God without faith. So if we are going to be a church that is going to honor God and bring glory to him, then we must. We have no choice. We have no option. It's not brave or courageous or innovative or creative or any of that kind of stuff. We must be a people who are faith-filled, big thinking, but the farm risk takers who believe that if God has called us, that he will provide, that if God is calling us, he has a path, that if God has called us, he will prepare us, that he will, he will go before us. You see, in fact, um, literally this phrase, bet the farm risk takers, it's literally what bore us as a church. I know a lot of you, well, some of you were around 160 some years ago when this church was started, um, but not a lot of you were around 160 some years ago. And when this church was started, it was started by people who literally bet their farm and bet their businesses 
on following God, that they believed like Abraham did when God called him to a land he had not seen, that it was better to follow God in a place you had not seen with conviction and with faith, and they left Monmouth, Illinois, and they sold everything they had. They bet all that they owned on following God. And because of their faith, we are here today. Because of their faith, there's a, a, a town named Monmouth. There's a church called Monmouth Christian. And there's a university that was once called the College at Monmouth and now is Western Oregon University. Because of their faith, it is what has borne us. It has been a part of our DNA as a church always. We are faith-filled, big-thinking, bet-the-farm risk-takers. And we will never, we will never insult God with small thinking or safe living. A couple years ago, we uh, we decided to try and make some uh, do some weird things for Christmas and Easter. And if you've been around, which you know you've probably seen, we've done some really um, weird and dumb things. Um, this last year, we did the the cover of that one song. I can't even think what the song was. Um, I should, since Aaron sacrificed all of his ego, Bohemian Rhapsody. Since Aaron sacrificed all of his ego to. Uh, to do that, I should remember that. We should have a little monument here. The day Aaron's ego died, right? Um, <laughs> and we did Bohemian Rhapsody, and uh, uh, someone else said, well, yeah, that was definitely a big step up from the year before when you wore that, uh, the, that Santa thing. You remember that, like, Santa riding on Santa's shoulders thing? Anyways, we've done all kinds of dumb, stupid, ridiculous stuff for Christmas and Easter because we thought, you know what? Let's leverage the opportunity that this is the one time people are going to show up to church and let's take a risk and let's be uncomfortable and let's, let's, let's sacrifice our comforts, me-centered focuses, so that maybe, just maybe in our faithfulness and obedience, God might do something in the world that we live in if we can give of ourselves. About a year and a half ago, a lady uh, sat in the parking lot of her workplace and planned how she would kill herself and all of her family. And as she did, she finished that planning, literally sitting in the car, talking with someone else about how they would, um, uh, planning a murder-suicide. She walked into her workplace, and someone from this church walked up to her and said, hey, you know what? Hey, uh, I was thinking Easter's coming up, and, and, and you should come to church with me and according to her story, this is what was said. He said to her, it's going to be epic. And she says as she tells her story, I, I never imagined church being epic. So I figured I'd wait and I'd try out church. Shortly after that, she registered for Rooted. At the end of 10 weeks in Rooted, she got baptized, and her whole life and her whole family and generations have been changed because our church was willing to sacrifice the comfort of our position and our privilege and our opportunities for the benefit of someone else because we were willing to bet, to risk, to follow God in faith that he would be honored and glorified as we trusted him. About five years ago, six years ago, we... We did a thing, maybe seven years ago, we did a thing called Cannonball. Some of you are in this room or watching online, you don't even know it, because of some people's sacrifices that they made during Cannonball. And we had this idea, we thought, what if for two years, what if we focused on three things? We called it our um, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. It's, it goes along with the Great Commission. Um, 
Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And uh, what, if we, what if we spent two years and everyone committed to one of the initiatives and, and the furthest away was our sister church in Salamanca. What if we spent two years focusing on serving them, loving them, resourcing them, and, and, and developing relationships. And then the second one was a struggling church in Fall City, you know, which is about 12, 15 miles uh, west of where we sit right now. And, uh, and then the other part was recognizing that we live in a community that's two towns, but it's really one community. And we weren't doing well at serving half of our community, and half of our community was independence. And so we spent two years committing to these, these initiatives. And um, did I tell you sometimes following Jesus is messy? <laughs> All you have to do is ask anyone who's part of the False City Initiative. They went up there, we tried doing these streaming services, and oh man, we have incredible volunteers, but um, it was a train wreck. <laughs> it was so uncomfortable. It was so painful. For two years, they drove 20 miles up there to go serve a bunch of people that owed them nothing. They got nothing out of it to love on them. And in the end, we just, it just ended. The Independence Initiative, we did a bunch of outreach stuff. Some of you, there's a picture that pops up in my timeline every once in a while of a uh, coat giveaway that we did. You remember a couple years ago when we had like 30 inches of snow that one weekend? Well, we'd scheduled a coat giveaway that one weekend. So a bunch of volunteers showed up and shoveled sidewalks hoping that maybe in 30 inches of snow that someone would show up and want a coat. I don't know why they would leave their house to go find a coat, but they did. And we did all these outreaches and all these events and we even launched a campus in Independence, and we did that for a couple years, and we weren't any better by the time we did the Independence campus of streaming a service than we were when we did Fall City. And there were some really awkward and uncomfortable Sundays. In fact, one Sunday, um, the, the live stream failed, which was a regular occurrence if you're part of one of these teams, you know this. The live stream failed, and we had hiccups and issues, and so uh, someone else had preached on that Sunday. I, I won't give any names up. Zach Halligan had preached on that Sunday. And, uh, and so we told him, we're like, hey, Zach, You've got to drive over to Independence, and you've got to go preach in person there. They're switching all the service up, and they're going to wait, and you've got to preach. And so Zach hurries over there. You remember the Zach? Hurries over there in a hurry, gets pulled over for speeding. <laughs> it was a mess. We had a conviction and a belief even when it didn't make sense. And, you know, we got emails and letters and elders had conversations with people and they'd say things like, you know, why are we spending money on a church up in Falls City when we have issues falling apart around our building? Why are we sending away some of our best volunteers to other places when we, uh, you know, can be so shorthanded around here? Why are we doing that? Because we had a conviction that God was calling us, that we were willing to bet and risk everything that we had to be obedient to God, that he would be honored in all things. And you know what happened this last fall? This last fall, um, the county came to us. A lot of you have heard this story. The county came to us and they said, um, uh, we don't think that it's right. First of all, think about this. The county, state, uh, county government came to us and said, we don't think it's right that your church single-handedly serves half of the county with your back-to-school event and we serve Dallas. And we want to partner with you and we want your name on it. We want you in charge of it. And we just want to provide all the backpacks. And because, here's the crazy thing, because we started an event like six years ago that we never intended to start. In fact, the way we started the event is we were just going to partner with Salvation Army and we're like, hey, we'll help you guys out. We'll make hot dogs. And then Salvation Army's like, that's great. We're out. You're on. Right? 
Now, this August, even as crazy and unpredictable as school is, our church is going to be a part of serving almost 2,000 students in our, all around our county. Because we took a step. We didn't know what it looked like. It was a mess. It was a mess. This last March, you guys know, in a period of 10 days, every church in the state of Oregon had to get online in 10 days. And you know what we did? We went, uh, hey, um, if you want to join us online like we've been doing every week for the last six years. Because we didn't know the path that God was leading us to. But we trusted him and we followed him. And we were obedient and God was preparing the way for a path we had not yet seen. And when we spent money and time and energy and training resources for year, training staff for years for our attempts in Fall City and Independence, five years later they came to fruition in the last 14, 16, 17 weeks, whatever it's been, we've been fully online, already prepared. God was preparing us for this moment because we had followed him in obedience. We are faithful, big thinking, bet the farm risk takers, and we will never insult God with small thinking or safe living. In March, a lot of uh, pastor friends of mine, when the whole COVID thing happened, they had to figure out how to raise twenty to $30,000 to get online so they continue to have church. You know what we did? We raised $27,000 for our Acts 2 initiative so that we could support and love on people in our community. Because years ago, we'd been faithful. Because a hundred and some years ago, a group of people were faithful and they took a step and they left Monmouth, Illinois to come to a place they had not seen, believing that following God and risking everything was worth it. And we will honor their legacy as a church and we will continue to honor our God by being faith-filled, uh, big-thinking, bet-the-farm risk-takers, and we will never insult God with small thinking or safe living. You have a choice every single day of your life to amaze Jesus, to either amaze him at the greatness of your faith, that you would walk where you have not seen steps, or you have the opportunity to amaze Jesus with your lack of faith. This morning, this morning, maybe you're not even a follower of Jesus. Maybe you don't even know the fullness of what it means to be a part of we that God, that part of the good news of the gospel is that God invites us when we were aliens and we were orphans and we were alone and we were broken and we were dark, that, that God invites us to become part of his family. He calls us sons and daughters to become part of his family. That we might sacrifice, that we might give up our me-centered life to follow him as we. This morning, if you are not a follower of Jesus, if you haven't made that decision, we want to invite you to risk, to honor God, to follow, to know the fullness of life. Jesus says in John 10, 10, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. And those words are paired with by the same Jesus who said those words, he said these. He said, you have to take up your cross and follow me. You have to give up on a me-centered life to follow him as we. There's a verse in Romans that says this, Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We believe. We believe that God can raise the dead. 
that he can heal the broken, that he can bring light into the darkness, that he can calm the storms of this world and of this life, that he can bring healing and restoration, he can bring joy in the midst of weeping, that he can restore all things because we are faith-filled, big-thinking, bet-the-farm risk-takers who will not insult God with small thinking and safe living. And if you, this morning, want to be a part of that journey, we want to invite you to be a part of we. Because we believe that God has great things he wants to do in this place, in our community, and in your life.